What a song. Just so, I love songs like that are just, just saturated with biblical truth. Um, if you're looking for a song to hold on to in the night, that's definitely one of them. If you got your Bibles, and I pray that you do, we're going to be in Psalms number 77 today. Psalm 77. We're going to be talking... The title of my message is, Don't Stop Believing When Your Day of Trouble Comes. Don't Stop Believing When Your Day of Trouble Comes. I'm not talking about the journey song. Some of y'all say, some of y'all already got it going in your head, don't you? Just a small town girl. <laughs> That's not the journey I'm talking about this morning, all right? I'm glad Nathan ain't here. He made a video about that, wasn't he? <laughs> All right, if you're there, I'd ask you to stand one more time to give reverence in reading the Word of God. Psalm chapter 77, and we'll read the entire psalm. The title of the psalm says, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. It says, To the choir master, according to Jedithon, it's a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1 says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. And that word salah is just a, a term that they believe means to just stop and meditate. Stop and think about what He said for just a minute. Verse 4, You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. And I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. And what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Salah. When the waters saw you, O oh God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted, lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You can be seated. Mr. Vance, would you open us in a word of prayer, please? Amen. 
Today in Psalm 77, we see that this is a psalm of a guy named Asaph. Now, if this is the Asaph that is mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 31 through 39, then we know a little bit about this guy. And we believe it is because we know that David and this Asaph were, were songwriters. That's what, that's one of the things that they did. This Asaph, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 5 tells us that he was a chief musician. Not a chief musician. It says that he was the chief musician. And so ultimately, here's some, some context about this guy so you can see a little bit about his life before we get into his trouble. This guy was the guy that when David wrote a psalm, you'll, you'll remember that a lot of times the superscription at the top will say, to the chief musician, right? This was the guy that when David wrote a psalm, he sent it to this guy and it was this guy's responsibility. His role in life was to serve God in the tabernacle with worship and praise through songs that were written. His job was to lead the congregation into praising God. It also tells us that he played the cymbals. And so he also was a musician. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, it tells us that he and David were both prophets of the Lord. And so they were people that God would show special visions and revelation to. And they would in turn take and write and reveal it to the people. So in a sense, these guys were, um, were pastors of the church, if you will. They were worship leaders of the church. And not just a worship leader, the worship leader of the church. In book three of the Psalms, and you'll, if you were to notice in Psalm 73, I told you this last week, but in case you weren't here, there are five books of the Psalms. Psalm 73 starts book three, and you can see that in your Bible if you look at the top of Psalm 73. But out of book three, or there are 16 Psalms, if I, if I counted right, in book three. I think it ends on Psalm 89. I think Psalm 90 begins another book. But out of 16 books of book three, Asaph authored 11, I think, 10 or 11 of those books. And so out of book three, he is the one that, that writes the majority of it. And so again, here are just a few things that you know about him. So he is a Levite because he's serving in the tabernacle. His life has been dedicated to serving in the tabernacle. And he serves as a prophet to the people. So God speaks to him, he speaks to the people. And he serves as a chief musician to the people to lead them in worship and praise. And this is what his life has been about. But now we find Asaph in this psalm right here in the day of his trouble. And we're going to see that here in just a few minutes. But I, the question that I asked myself, and I wrote it down in my notes here, is what do you do when you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your entire life has been dedicated to Him in worship and praise, but now your day of trouble has come and you have done everything, and you find no comfort, no help anywhere. What do you do? And that's what we find out in Psalm 77. This is what has actually happened to Asaph here. And so you're going to notice that even as great a man that served his life for the Lord, even as great a faith as he has, when trouble comes, it can shake your faith to the core. And you can see his struggle in faith as he goes through this psalm. And you're going to see that he does everything that he can possibly do, but yet he's still got to be the pastor, he's still got to be the worship leader, but deep down inside, he's got so many questions and he don't know any of the answers. I can remember a time like that in my life. I remember it's been, it was over 15 years ago, I know. But they called me to preach a revival at a church. Now you know what a revival is, don't you? 
It's a special service that basically your job as the preacher of this revival is to preach the Word of God in such a way that you reignite or you at least provide the means of the Word of God to reignite people's faith and to just uh, start a fire in them for the Lord. But what do you do when that's your job and when you're standing in the pulpit to preach, you're literally asking yourself, what are you doing here? You know you don't believe this stuff anyway. And I had to preach that revival. I preached my heart out. But the truth of the matter was, deep down inside, because of what I was going through, I had so many questions and no answers. And I was just telling myself the whole time I was preaching, you know you don't believe this. And I, 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 can I be honest with you this morning and you not think I'm being a sinner? I'd say, I don't believe this crap anyway. That's where mentally, mentally I was at that time. And I can't help but see that Asaph is there, but even further than I was. Because let me tell you something, I was very immature in my faith at that time and didn't know it. I thought I knew everything. And you know how much I knew? I didn't know anything. But I was so immature in my faith that I wasn't doing the things that Asaph does here to try to work through this. I'm just laying and wallowing in my self-pity and asking questions and no answers, but that's it. Asaph here is actually mature enough that he's actually doing everything that he can possibly do. And still, he can find no comfort whatsoever. So... First, let's outline this psalm so that you can at least see how I'm putting this together. Verses 1 through 6 is how I bracketed the first section. And it's actually verses 1 through the first part of verse 6. And I labeled this the day of trouble. The day of trouble. Basically, Asaph's day of trouble has come. His day of trouble is here. The second part is outlined from the middle of verse 6 or the end of verse 6 where he says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. All right? So that it starts there and it goes down to verse 9. And I entitled and labeled this the questions. The questions that he asked. Trouble has come into Asaph's life. And this trouble has led him to ask a lot of questions. Next, I labeled in verse 10 through verse 15. In verse 10 through verse 15, I labeled the correction. Here we see where Asaph corrects himself. He don't just allow himself to stay in this mental place, but he corrects himself. Now the trouble don't go away. He don't get comfort, but he knows what's right. And he corrects himself. And then in verse 16 through 20, we see the great example the great example of Asaph's correction. All right. So let's take them one step at a time. Let's go first through one through six and let's look at Asaph's day of trouble. Now, the reason I say Asaph's day of trouble is because you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, in this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulation. In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation in this world. There is no way around it. But take heart. Be encouraged. Have strength within your heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome all the troubles of this world. I have proven that there is no trouble that you will face that I cannot and will not one day overcome for you. And so we see that each and every one of us are going to have our day of trouble. Asaph under... You know, and that's the thing about it. How many times do you hear somebody pray and they say, hey, will you please pray for so-and-so? But because it's not close and connected to you, you don't really feel that trouble the way they feel that trouble, do you? But what happens when your day of trouble comes? It's different. Asaph understands, this is my day of trouble. No one is exempt from the world's troubles. Unbelievers will experience this world's troubles. The world is cursed. 
And it, we are all going to experience the curse of this world in some way. The only difference in the way that unbelievers experience trouble and the way believers experience trouble is for unbelievers, it's the wrath of God being poured out. For believers, it is discipline, it is correction, it is um, testing of faith. It is God always promising that He is going to take anything that the world means for evil and He's going to use it for good. You remember what Joseph said to his brothers? Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery. He had been in prison for many years of his life. He had been in some of the deepest and darkest, um, if you will, hells on this earth. And yet, and his brothers were the culprits behind it. And when he finally meets his brothers face to face and he is the king of Egypt, you remember what he said to his brothers? I forgive you. And you know why? Because what you meant for evil, God what? Meant for good. God meant it. They meant it for one thing. The world means it. Satan means it for one thing. God says to the believer, I mean it for your good. And that's a promise from Him that we can claim. I, and that's the only difference between an unbeliever and a believer. So, you are not exempt. Your day of trouble is coming if it's not already been here. And let me tell you, there is nothing in the Bible says you're only going to have one. Unfortunately. So let's keep looking at what His day of trouble looked like. Verse 1, first off, His day of trouble made Him cry aloud to God. Notice how he repeats it in verse 1. He said, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God! Can you hear why he's saying it this way? And then he says, and He will hear me. Here's what Asaph knows. He's mature enough to know that if he cries to God, God will hear him. He knows that God hears him and even still. He doesn't get the response to his trouble like he would expect. Notice he says in verse 2, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. So in his trouble, he cries aloud. In his trouble, he isn't turning to the bottle. In his trouble, he isn't turning to depression and just laying in his bed. In his trouble, he isn't turning to the world and looking for counsel from a, a psychiatrist, not saying that seeing a psychiatrist is bad in and of itself, but it better not be the first place you go as a Christian. And so he's not turning to anything in this world except God. And that's exactly where he should turn. And he says here, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. You know what that means? He's praying without ceasing. His hands may get, start losing strength, but he don't quit. In the night, he's just praying, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. And let me tell you something, i am not reached this place yet. But that's all this guy's doing. It's just all through the night, he's praying without wearying. And then notice what else he does in verse 3. When he does all this, because remember, as he's doing this, he's remembering God is what he's doing. He's saying, I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to cry to the Lord. I'm going to pray to the Lord. I'm doing everything I know to do. And yet, notice verse 3, when I remember God, what does it cause him to do? Does he get comfort? No. He says, when I remember God, I moan. I moan. You ever had so much trouble in your life that the only thing you can do is just... And that's what happens the more he remembers God, the more he does everything he knows how to do. There's no comfort that comes. And not only that, the more he thinks about it, the more he meditates on it. Look what happens. My spirit faints. The more I try, the more I do, the more I'm praying, the more I'm seeking, um, I moan and my spirit, literally, I lose all strength in my heart. And then notice what he says in verse 4. This is more of the trouble. You hold my eyelids open. Who is you? God. He paints you a picture here. He doesn't just say here, hey guys, I just can't sleep at night. That's not good enough. He wants you to see the picture that says, guys, you need to understand something. I can't sleep at night and it's almost like God has taken me and He's just holding my eyelids open 
so that they will not close. And this is what the trouble is doing to him. And then he says next, and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He can't even find words to talk about it. The, he, won't, he would love nothing more than to just talk about it and, the, and, and he can't even find, find the words to even, to even talk about it. And then in verse 5 he says, I consider the days of old. He tries thinking about the good old days. You remember last week I told you the psalmist, I, everything I told you last week is true. This just steps it up a level. Last week the psalmist said, I'm going to remember back when I did this with God and did that with God and I'm going to remember these things. And, and you know what? Sometimes Asaph understands. Sometimes that helps. Sometimes I try to think about the good old days and, and I still just moan. I still can't find comfort in my soul. And then he goes on next and he says, I try to think about the years long ago and even still... He can't find any comfort. And then finally, in verse 6, he tries what I told you last week. He says, God, let me remember my song in the night. Let me remember my song. You remember last week I told you the psalmist wants to sing at night. Not songs of joy, but just songs of faith. Songs of just, God, I trust you. And yet he can't even find a song. He can't even find a song to sing. And then, notice what he says next. He says, and let me meditate on it in my heart. But he can't find it. He can't meditate on the truth of Scripture in song. The, the, the only thing he can do is just keep doing all of these things. And yet in verse 2 in the middle, he says, my soul refuses to be comforted. Now, does that mean that he refuses to be comforted? No, it says his soul. He's doing everything he can to find comfort, but deep down in his soul, there is no comfort to be found no matter what he does. So again, I ask the question, what do you do when you love the Lord with everything in you? When your life has been about serving Him and worship and praising and leading others in it, and now all of a sudden, no matter what you do, your soul refuses to be comforted in your day of trouble. Well, next we see the second section. It leads him to questions. All his crying out to God, all of his praying, knowing that God hears him, all of his seeking God, staying awake in the night and just trying to meditate on the truths of God, it does nothing but lead him to questions. You know how many people have asked me questions in these last few weeks? They called me as a pastor. I can't tell you how many of you. I, I would ask you to raise your hand, but I'm not going to embarrass you. So many people have called me and they said, why, why would God do this? Why would God... I mean, and, and pertaining to, to Nick, and, and they would say, He was such a good... He served, He did this, He did that, and I've been this, and I've been that, and I've... And I said, no, you, you've got it twisted. Nick was a sinner too. It's not about how good you are. That's not why God loves you and why God saves you. God loves you and saves you because of what Jesus did for you. That's it. But what something like that does is brings up so many questions in people's minds. And notice what... The questions come from in verse 7. He says, or actually the end of verse 6, he says, Then my spirit made a diligent search. In other words, all these questions came up and I began to search them out. Here was the first question. He said, Will the Lord spurn forever? Another word for this would be, Will the Lord reject me forever? He says, The Lord is just rejecting me right now. Is He going to do this forever? Will He never again be favorable? Will He never show His favor to me again? But you know, Asaph served with David. And he would have known when David wrote the psalm, he sent it to the chief musician. It was his job to take this song and to lead the people in praise. Well, let me remind you of a psalm that David sent to Asaph in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. This is what it says. His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. 
Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. What did Asaph and David know? They knew that there is going to be a time of weeping. There's going to be a time of trouble. There's going to be times of sorrow. And it may be because of his anger towards sin. It may be, but it is only for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. His favor never ceases. Weeping may last through the night, but joy is coming. He knows this. And so he has to remind himself of the truth here. And so in verse 8, he goes down, he asks another question. He says, okay, has his steadfast love, in other words, has his love that endures forever and ever, has it ceased? And are his promises at an end for all time? And he knew the answer to this. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says this, the steadfast love of God never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. He knew this. But the times of trouble raises these questions in His mind. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tell us that His promises never come to an end. It said, is He a man that He should lie? Will He say something and not do it? Will He make a promise and not keep it? You know what the answer to that is? No. That's not who God is. And so these questions, He knows the answers to, but the meditation and the trouble leads you to these kind of questions, don't it? And then in verse 9, He gets to the last question. He says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Maybe that's what it is. Okay, I know that His love doesn't end, His mercies never end. But maybe the problem is that He's just forgotten to show me grace. Maybe that's what it is. And here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49 verse 15. He said, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And we know the answer to that. It's possible, ain't it? It's possible. But for the most part, it's not likely. He says this, Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your name has been engraved on the palms of His hand. I will not forget you. I will not forget to be gracious to you. And then finally at the end of verse 9 He says, Has He in anger shut up His compassion? And you know the answer to that too. The answer is no. His anger may be for a season. Weeping may endure for the night. But joy comes in the morning. And His anger is but for a moment. And so when trouble tempts you to ask these kind of questions, you answer with His Word. You don't listen to what your mind tells you that maybe God has done this or maybe God has done that. You preach to yourself again and you tell yourself, this is what God has said. God has said, my anger is only for a moment, but my love is for eternity. My mercy endures forever. My grace has no end. We answer with His Word. Next, we see the correction in verses 10 through 15. He corrects himself. Now, verse 10 is a little difficult. The Hebrew is a little obscure. It's, um, it's difficult to, to translate. It's a little harder to make out. Some versions translate it like mine does here, and they say in verse 10, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. But if you have an English Standard Version, and here's another reason why I love the ESV version. The ESV version, the reason I preach from it is because it is a modern translation that has been translated word for word from the original manuscripts. Alright? It is not a paraphrase translation. They take the majority of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, Arabic manuscripts, and they translate it word for word. And if the English translation has a question about a translation, 
they will put a footnote at the bottom that tells you some manuscripts say this or some versions translate it like this. So if you have your ESV, you'll notice that there is a number beside a verse 10 or a letter or something. Mine has a number 3. And then you look down at the very bottom of the page and it will tell you to read it like this. This is my grief or this is my sickness that the right hand of the Most High has changed. And I do believe that that is a more correct translation. If you have the New American Standard Bible, that is what it says in your Bible. It says, this is my grief or this is my sickness that the right hand of the Most High has changed. In other words, it makes sense for him after asking them questions to say, this makes me sick that that the right hand of God has changed and is no longer being favorable to me and is no longer uh, showing mercy toward me and, and it seems like he's, he's not remembering me and he has forgotten and he, he's angry and so this makes me sick. Or he could be saying, and this is the way I like to understand it because it lines up with everything else. Next he says, this makes me so sick that I think this way. Remember, this would make sense for a mature man of God, wouldn't it? This makes me sick that I would actually think that the right hand of God has changed. Because what, what is the one attribute of God that a mature man of God ought to know? God does not what? God does not change. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. And He will be the same Tomorrow, before the foundations of the earth were created, His Word tells us He knew you. He knew your beginning. See, when we, when we see a baby that's born, a child, a young child, we see that child in their innocence, don't we? We see that child as just a good child. But here's the truth of it. When God looks at this child, God doesn't just see who she is right now. God sees who she will be as a teenager. <laughs> That's right. She turned around and looked at me and went, huh? God sees who she will be as a teenager. God sees who she will be as an adult. God sees who she will be as an elderly woman. God sees her beginning all the way to her end, He sees her whole life. God knows this about each and every one of you. And so it's not like that God is going all of a sudden in this young lady's teenage years and she starts getting into her rebellious state. It's not like God is all of a sudden going to say, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be gracious to her anymore. She's not a good girl anymore. She's a bad girl. She's looking at Amanda like, huh? But that's not the way God works. God knows your beginning all the way to your end. And so if God has called you and has made you His child and has decided to be gracious to you, it will not change no matter what you do. Because when He died for your sins, He died for your presence, for your past sins, for your present sins, and He even died for all of your future sins because He knew them all before the foundations of the earth were ever created. Now that's what the Bible teaches us, okay? So a mature man of God knows at least one thing. God does not change toward me just because of sin or because of any other thing in my life. Because when He died for my sins, He died once for all time. And they're all covered. And so, here's what He says here in His correction. I'm sick that the right hand of God has changed, that, the, that I feel like it's changed. Yet, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember. Notice how many times He says, I will, in verses 10 through uh, 15, but especially 10 through, thir- 10 through 12. He says, Then I said... I will do this. And then in verse 11, I will remember. And then the end of verse 11, I will remember. Verse 12, I will ponder and I will meditate. 
He says, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to remember and ponder all of His great wonders of power over all of our troubles. In other words, I may not see Him conquering my trouble right now, but I will remember that He has already proven that there is no trouble that He cannot conquer. That He has proven that He will redeem, He will deliver, He will save me from all of my troubles. And so in verse 10 through 15, basically we'll look through there, He says in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder or meditate all of your work and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And then here's what he says, I know about God. God, your way, O God, is holy. I love the fact that in the midst of his trouble, he just confesses that God, I got so many questions. God, I don't understand this trouble. I don't understand why I know you hear me, but you're not helping. God, I I don't know a lot of things. But if there's one thing I know, I know you're holy. I know you're holy. You know why it's important to confess God in the midst of your trouble? Because the Bible tells us that the battle that's going on between Satan and God is that Satan is the great accuser. And here's what Satan is saying to God about you in your day of trouble. The only reason they confess you, the only reason they praise you is because you have gave them this and you've done this, and you've done this. But let me take this away from them. They'll curse you. They'll deny you. Y'all remember that story from the book of Job? The reason why it's so important that in the midst of this trouble, verse 13, he just stops and he says, God, I don't understand. I don't know why. I can't make sense of this. But one thing I know, Your way, O God, is holy. I know that. That is the test of your faith. And He passes the test right here. With all of His questions, with all of His trouble, right here, He passes the test. And then in verse 14, He says, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known Your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And again, he's drawing his mind back to the fact that God has already proven that He will save. God has already proven in wonders of old that He will deliver. And he's going to ponder and meditate on God proving that there is no trouble that He will not deliver from. Here's basically what he says here. I may have to deal with the sorrow and the trouble of this world, but I'm not going to stop believing in your victory over the troubles. I may have to deal with this great sorrow, with this my soul refusing comfort, but one thing I know, I'm not going to stop believing in your victory, in your power, in your wonders over all the troubles of the world and your ability to save and to redeem. This was Israel's problem. I love that Psalm 78 of Asaph comes right after 77. Let me show you what he does. And I'm just going to show you a few verses. Start in verse 12. Because basically what he does is he starts talking in verse 78 about all the wonders of God, the wonders of old, all the power that He showed in redeeming Israel. And notice what he says beginning in verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders in the land of Egypt. In other words, he proved that he had power over every darkness, over every trouble. Verse 13, he divided the sea. He let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud. And all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Keep going with me. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? 
Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. And verse 22 tells you why. Because here was the ultimate problem. When trouble came to Israel, when they were hungry, they questioned God. God, I don't know if you can defeat this hunger. Yeah, you defeat the thirst. You brought water out of a rock. But you can't give us food. Or God, yeah, you delivered us from Egypt, but now we're standing in front of a Red Sea. What are you going to do about this? And here's the ultimate root of their problem in verse 22. Because what? They did not believe in God and did not trust in what? His saving power. That's the problem. Asaph knows that if he stops believing and trusting in God and God's saving power, he's no different than Israel. Just because trouble comes does not mean that God can't conquer it. We ought to sit there in our wilderness and in our hunger and say, God, I am hungry, but I know what you can do and I trust you. God, I am hurting, but I know what you can do and I trust you. Israel, on the other hand, didn't. Go with me to a few other verses in 78. Look at verse 23. Skip over to verse... or Start at verse 23. Yet He commanded skies above, opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by His power He led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust. Winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. Talking about the quail that He sent them. Alright? Verse 29. They ate and they were well filled, for He gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this... They still sinned despite His wonders. And what was the problem? They did not believe. And now go down with me to verse 38. Yet He being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all of His wrath. In verse 39, He remembered that they were just flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. And then skip down with me to verse 42. They did not remember His power or the day when He redeemed them from the foe. What is the problem? Asaph understands that every time trouble came, I don't care what it was, every time trouble came into their life, what did they do? They didn't believe. They did not believe in the saving power of God. They did not trust that He could overcome any trouble that came into their life. They did not remember His saving work that He did and where He proved what He could do. So, what we get to last is the great example in verse, in verse 16 through 20. Go back to Psalm 77, verse 16 through 20. This is the great example and this is the last of it. Because He could talk about many examples of God's saving power, right? I mean, he's seen them cross the Jordan. Just read the Old Testament. There's many examples. He picks the greatest example of God proving that there is no trouble that we can get ourselves in or that the world can throw at us that He cannot overcome. And so in verse 16, he says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, what happened? They were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Now think about this. Israel had the Egyptian army coming behind them, right? And if you go back to Exodus 14 and you read it, you know what they did? They started crying to God and to Moses and they said, We wish we'd just stayed in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die? They have seen everything that God done in Egypt, haven't they? And yet now they face a trouble. The army is backing on to them. And they're sandwiched between the, Egypt, between the army of Egypt and a Red Sea. If they go into the sea, we drown. If we turn and go back, we die, we're captured. And so here they find themselves in the midst of trouble. 
Now their trouble scares them. The water is their fear. The Egyptian army is their fear. That's their trouble. What does God do to their trouble? When the trouble saw God, guess what the water did? The waters trembled. Yea, the deep of the water trembled and shook. And I love what happens next in verse 17. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. So you don't get to read this in Exodus. Exodus is basically you read a little section that says this is what happened. They walked across the sea on dry land when Moses struck the water. But what you don't know is that God showed them exactly His power over everything. And the clouds poured out as the Egyptians tried to bear down on them. And, they could, and you go back and read Exodus 14. You can see where you can put all this in there. But the Egyptian army is trying to get to them and their wheels start clogging up. They can't go. And then they start fearing God. And here's exactly what they say. They say, we can't pursue them much longer because the Lord fights for them. And the two things that Israel was scared of, their two troubles now are scared of their God. And so we see the clouds pouring out rain. We see the skies giving forth thunder. We see His arrows flashing on every side, which is what? Lightning flashing on every side as they're getting ready to go through the Red Sea. All right, And then keep going with me. In verse 18, The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. What does that tell you was there that day? Tornado, right? You got thunder, you got lightning, you got clouds, you got this monstrous storm that has come up as Israel is trying to bear down on them. And then notice what it says The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And then I love verse 19 Your way was through the sea. That's important. He remembered the way of God was through the trouble. They could have walked on the water, couldn't they? But the way of God for them was through the trouble. They walked through the trouble, and I love this right here. They didn't know He was there, but He led the way. They followed Moses and Aaron, but notice what this psalmist says next. Your path was through the great waters, yet your footprints were what? Nobody saw Him. The only thing they saw was the thunder, the lightning, the rain. The only thing they saw was the trouble. And the only thing they saw was they're going to be led right through the middle of the trouble. But one thing that this psalmist understands is even though his way was right through the middle of the trouble, he was there. His footprints were unseen. But he was there. He was there the whole time. And then verse 20, this is the end. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I don't even have time to talk about the shepherd and what it and his gentle care and how he provided for them and how um, and how he led them like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in closing, what do we learn from this? What do we take from this? Here's four lessons. First lesson, everyone is going to have their day of trouble in this world. Asaph recognized that this was his day. This is my day of trouble. You are going to have your day of trouble. Maybe days of trouble. Here's the second lesson. Do whatever you can do to help keep your faith strong. Cry aloud to God. Seek God. Pray without ceasing. When you can't sleep, try to sing about His faithfulness. You do everything you can do. But sometimes if it don't work when there's no comfort to be found, the third lesson is this. Just don't stop believing. You don't stop believing in His power. You don't stop believing in His goodness. You don't stop believing in His faithfulness. You don't stop believing that that's the reason why Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. I have proven to you in every way. And go back and read the Gospel of John. Every time you see where Jesus did a sign, when you see that word sign, you stop and you look at it because here's what Jesus was doing. He was proving 
that I am God in the flesh and there is no trouble in this world that I cannot overcome. If you're thirsty, I can turn water into wine. If you're hungry, I can make two fish and five loaves feed 5,000. If you need light, I'm the light of the world. If you, uh, if you need water, I'm the living water. And if you drink what I have to give, you'll never thirst again. And he goes on and on and on all the way through the Gospel of John. And he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. I have proven time and time again that my power will overcome every trouble that this world throws at us. <clears throat> the fourth lesson. The Lord's footsteps may be unseen, but He's leading the way through the danger, through the trouble. You don't think for one second that if you're going through the trouble that God's not with you. You may not see the footsteps, but He's there. He's there. <clears throat> this, um, this may not bring comfort. I don't believe when Asaph ended this psalm that all of a sudden he said, okay, I'm comforted now. But even in the midst of his sorrow, he refused to stop believing that God was holy, that God was all-powerful, and that, that, that He was with Him through it all, no matter what it was that He went through it. So I pray that you're doing everything you can through these times of trouble because there's many of you in here. It's not just the King family that I'm talking to this morning. I'm talking to many of you. There is no trouble that you're going to face that He is not with you in and that He does not mean you're good through it all. And so I pray, don't stop believing when your day of trouble comes, you keep believing, you keep trusting. That was Israel's problem. And that's why they didn't enter the promised land. It wasn't because of some great sin they did. It was simply because they did not believe God and they did not trust God. You keep believing, you keep trusting, and no matter what, you can be of good cheer because He has overcome the world and your sorrow will be turned into joy one day.